Welcome back to the show. I am Dr. Brad Dieter, the Chief Operating Officer of Macros Inc., a nutrition and fitness coaching company. And this is My Take, a podcast that discusses current events in nutrition, the business side of the health and fitness industry, and a little bit of everything in between. Let's get into the show. Today's episode is brought to you by a good friend of mine. Actually, this is the very first interview of season three of the podcast. Kind of crazy that we have three seasons. We should have two episodes launching this week, both of them on video. Today's episode is with a good friend and colleague of mine, Andrew Coates. If you guys uh, are in the industry, you've probably seen him on Instagram. His kind of social following there has really blown up. I've known Andrew probably since before he had an Instagram, uh, really awesome guy, super excited that we were able to bring this interview for you guys. Uh, if you want to check out the video and you want to see his cat that made several appearances, uh, just go check us out on YouTube. Just look me up. Uh, M I Brad Dieter. That's macros Inc. Brad Dieter. Anyway, let's get into the show. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Uh, I have our first guest of the video podcast. Um, it, it's fitting <laughs> that this is the inaugural video podcast. Um, I have with me Andrew Coates. Um, so I've known Andrew for... God, it feels like how many years now? I mean, it feels like it's been a decade just because of the last five years have been such an insane period of time. Um, but yeah, I, I've known you, I think, since 2018, it must have been. Um 2018 Inland Empire Fitness Conference, which we were just talking about off air, our good friend Tim Arndt and, and how I came, I met him in 2017. I came to attend his event in 2018 and 2019, and you were a speaker both times. And then uh, I spoke the last two years. You spoke, you, you're like a, a mainstay in the event, and you, we've got to hang out a bunch. And uh, it's one of my favorite occasions of the year, uh, as long as the world doesn't throw curveballs at us to interfere with it. And, Yep. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I've always admired about you in your career is that like, I, I obviously didn't know you very early in your career, but you've always treated this like you're a professional, right? Like you came in, you treated this like a professional. Um, and, and you've been, you've been around for how, how long have you been doing what you've been doing? 12 and a half years. I, I yeah. started coaching 12 and a half years ago. And I'm a late starter in the industry. I, I went to business school. I yeah. worked in a variety of different things. A brief stay in banking. I was a bar owner back in Eastern Canada, where I'm originally from, St. John's, Newfoundland. And I started as a personal trainer at 32 years of age. Yeah. So that's kind of what I want to talk to you a little bit about today. It is really a little bit more about your kind of career arc um, and a lot of just kind of what you've learned. That's awesome. I love it. We have we have cats and dogs that show up on our team calls all the time, so it's perfect. Uh, I want to start kind of high level. You know, when you think about, you know, I think your and I's timeline in terms of like when we started in the industry to now has been pretty similar. Because I think I really got involved probably twenty. 2010, 2011 was when I first started kind of working in this field. Um, it, and it's obviously changed a lot, right? Like we kind of grew up in our careers in really social media, 
kind of the, I hate using this word, but the rise of evidence-based practice, we've seen a lot of things. So when you think about your career or kind of what have been the big things that you've seen over your career that you've learned and that you've kind of taken to heart as a professional? Oh, I got very lucky in early on. I took an interest in, okay, let me, let me shift gears a little bit. I think a lot of people, your course might've been different because you're in high level academics. Uh, you know, you're in the research space, you're in the med- medical space. Whereas I think most fitness professionals probably do the proverbial start on the gym floor, personal trainer thing, which I did. And I think 12 and a half years ago, a lot of them learn what they learned in the gym and they didn't necessarily branch out into, we take for granted now just how much continuing education, how many authorities there are, it can get confusing. But then I think there was sort of a, a almost just like this elite club of educators. And if you didn't get exposed to these people, you know, you're a lot of the T Nation writers, not necessarily all of them, but a lot of them, uh, your Dr. Lane Norton's and you know, people like Greg Knuckles, James Krieger would be good examples. And I certainly count you among them now, right? As, as your career has gone on. Uh, Dr. John Berardi is probably a really good example of someone who's been around a long time. And But they're not necessarily out there in that bodybuilding, competitive, mainstream media space. Lane is starting to break into that now because he's getting on podcasts like Rogan and Huberman. So it's very tiny little niche. And I don't, I think we take for granted that not all personal trainers, and Ozzy keeps walking back and forth in front of the camera, <laughs> even get exposed to, you know, what we'll call the evidence or more evidence-based. And yes, that that has become kind of tribal and there's some goofy shit there too. But I got lucky in that early on, I got exposed to Lane Norton and, you know, smart principles of strength training, primarily again through T Nation early on, Eric Cressy or Tony Jalaforce, these type of people. And that to me and being plugged in with that world, I think has been the most valuable thing. Then I started traveling to events where I started meeting a lot of these people. So I think an interest and a love of learning and not just necessarily the technical aspects of training and nutrition. Those have always been there, but getting into, into books on, on marketing. And, and as much as people will hear the word sales and go, ew, if you actually understand sales, we as fitness professionals, nutrition professionals, are in a constant state of sales. Uh, Daniel Pink's book, To Sell is Human, is a really good example of this. Where, Ozzy, we're going to move you. Okay, good. Uh, where it's more about if you're trying to convince someone of your point of view or to change behavior. I mean, that at its essence is sales. And if you're very good at asking the right questions, getting people to buy in to behavior change that is in their best interest... Uh, a, you'll be a great salesperson, but you'll also be a great fitness professional, nutrition professional. So those things have been big mainstays for me. And, and honestly, I think they're the differentiators between the people who stagnate and usually don't stick around in the industry and the people who I think grow into the space. And then as another element that I think is really important too is, especially starting out in the commercial gym space, you learn a set of skills that can treat you really well in that space, but then can actually work against you later on if you stay stuck in that rigid box of thinking. I think this is also true of people who learn to brute force work out and, eh, you know, hardcore whatever nutrition when they're younger, when they have more time, 
And then they, as they get older, they would, they say, well, if I had more time, I know how to do it. I know the formula. It's just the way I did it in my twenties. It was just a shit ton of running and, you know, long hours of the gym. And that skill then works against you because you think it's the only way when you have to relearn this way of, I have to be more efficient in my workouts. You know, I can't beat my body up the way I did in my twenties. It's not as forgiving. Uh, you know, I can't be as all or nothing or extreme with my nutrition. And with this rigid box of thinking, I think a lot of trainers get very stuck in it. And I don't begrudge anyone who decides to stay in a commercial gym model. You know, I don't necessarily think it's any more secure. They may feel more stable there. But getting around other people in the industry has been a godsend because it helped me leave that box and expand my horizons and it opened the doors to getting to write for T Nation and, you know, eventually things like muscle fitness and men's health, you know, these things that I've been reading for a long time or host a podcast, which you've been a guest on, on ours, or even invitations like, you know, Tim was the first person to invite me to speak at an event. And then that blew up. And I had eight events last year and six so far on the books this year. And, you know, the, the trainer who stays rigid in that little box doesn't even believe this sort of stuff's possible. I know I wandered a bit for a field there, so I'll get you to reel me back in and maybe make sure we answer the essence of the question, spirit of the question. Yeah. So, you know, when I think about just maybe the last 10 to 15 years and kind of our, our profession, it's been very interesting to watch kind of three groups of what I'll call people or professionals of like, you know, one, you have the kind of this group of people who kind of come in and out of the industry, right? Like they come in, they're, they're personal trainers or they're nutrition coaches for 12, 24, 36 months. They kind of end up not really figuring out how to build a clientele book and then they leave. Right. So we kind of have this like very low level churnover of professionals. Right. Um, then you have the people who come in, somehow figure something out, just make an absolute viral sensation of themselves. And then they're there for 18 months and then they're gone, right? They kind of made their money and then they're out, right? And then you have this group of people who come in, they may struggle for a while. They eventually figure out kind of how to build a book of clients. They really start to dive into their profession and then they last for 20, 30, 40, 50 year careers, right? Uh, and what's been interesting is to just like kind of watch that continue to happen over and over and over. And I kind of just like to make mental notes of, you know, the people who it's like every time I see a big YouTube ad for somebody, I think like the most recent one is like the V shred guy, like all these people who come in and kind of make these splashes. One of the things that really kind of I've been thinking about a lot lately is what is that doing to us as professionals? But more importantly, what is that doing to all of our potential clients? Right. And then how do we as professionals think about how do we handle clients who come to us after they're exposed to all this stuff? Well, I think there's, there's actually really something interesting here. And, you know, the example of V shred is actually really interesting because I actually, the guy showed up and started following me one day and he's been around a while and He's Vince has been criticized for, you know, I think slicker marketing type stuff. And I remember being, you know, I was subscribed to all these Facebook pages, these skeptics pages, and being hardcore, almost militant about, you know, A, if it doesn't show up in a study, blah, 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 debunking everything, and which includes, you know, almost 
predatory aggression towards acupuncturists and chiropractors and, and whatnot. And we get very loose in basically saying that every everybody and everything is a charlatan who does not meet our standard of evidence-based practice. Now, also, I didn't let, you know, let my brain fall, you know, fall out and flip to the other side. But I've also been around some really smart evidence-based people who've developed relationships a little bit more broadly and understand that reach and impact are a thing. And we can sit in the ivory tower and police what other people are saying. And there are little tribes that do this. Uh, there's sort of a tribe of physical therapists that like to do this sort of stuff. And I get along with some of them. And they're actually smart people and you can learn a lot from them. But then they start attacking other established people in the industry who maybe haven't necessarily stayed super current on the latest research. And maybe they've gotten a little bit entrenched in a position based on the theories that haven't held up as strongly as scrutiny. But I think overwhelmingly they're doing great things. And we... We can also create a lot of fear, barriers to entry, and access to good information by just simply fighting, infighting within our industry, which I do not think helps the end user. So I think instead, the people who are the most successful now are watching your V-shreds and whoever else is out there. I, again, I'm, I'm not advocating for the, the absolute charlatans. I mean, the liver king, no, like. There's no merit to anything that he's saying, and he's been exposed as a fraud. But it's also easy for us to say, well, God, it was obvious she was on steroids, which <laughs> means how out of touch we can be with the everyday person we're trying to help. Because they don't necessarily, you know, I kind of hope that they sort of suspect, but a lot of people think if this guy says he's natural, then they assume he's natural. So how different is it than believing that the baseball players of the heights of the early 2000s or Maguire's and Sosa's, oh, oh, those guys are natural, or that pro wrestling was real, uh, these guys were natural. So we pro wrestling is real. There you go. I mean, like, <laughs> and obviously the the impact and, and the skill that's required, sure, but it also the, the, the theater that's woven in with the athleticism, right? And But I remember it was this big, shocking thing. I was still fairly young when it came out that, oh, my God, like, wrestling's not actually real. And now we look back and be like, come on. But we, we should empathize with the fact that a lot of the people are trying to help actually take most of the stuff at face value. So there's a lot of value in fitness professionals. And I've talked about this as one of my favorite sort of topics is to embrace and lean into developing a personal brand and discarding this <clears throat> sour grapes mentality because to this point you struggled to do much with social media and therefore complain about all the influencers who are sharing misinformation. They need to be regulated. Guess what? I don't think the liver King is certified in anything and no amount of regulation is actually going to make him go away, nor is it going to make, you know, the, the uncertified quote fitness influencers who, you know, for whatever reason, they develop a following based on aesthetics. Half the time, these followings are fake anyway, so don't even be fooled by it. And then they start selling programs. Okay, those people won't be policed off the internet. So complaining about them is completely pointless. So we've actually, be, we'd be much better off scaling our own ability to reach and help more people, get out of the ivory tower a little bit, speak the language of the end user. A great example of this is every once in a while I see a fitness professional, usually they're fairly smart and well-intentioned, but they start complaining about the word tone. They say, tone is not a thing. I'm like, bullshit. Tone is a thing. We know what the person who sits in front of us, who's relatively new to this, means when they say, hey, 
I don't want to get too bulky. I just want to tone up. And a lot of people have been that that trainer who turns around immediately needs to correct this person, educate them on how, hey, tone is not a thing, blah, 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 blah. At which point you've destroyed trust. You made the person feel really stupid. And then they're going to walk away. And then they're going to work with someone who uses this language, but who may not have your integrity or skill set. So we understand what they mean. Listen to them. My answer to that is, I know exactly what you mean. Cool. And then I continue to listen, ask questions. And then over time, we, we teach them just through the way that we teach everything about how muscle muscles built and how fat is lost. And we don't need to correct them. So it's, it's having empathy for where that person is and then getting really goddamn good at writing and video and media and understanding how social media works to the point where, yeah, you, you scale personal branding, media following, sure. And don't think of it as this negative thing, but as something that we can do a lot of good with it. You look at people like Jordan Syatt, and again, Lane Norton, and Sohi Lee, Spencer Nadolsky. They've built fairly substantial social media followings based upon a legacy of creating good, nuanced, evidence-based information that, generally speaking, has empathy. I mean, they each have their own style. Lane is far more bombastic, but if you've ever spent any time around the guy, we spoke at an event in December, He's a real sweetheart. He's a great, great guy, right? He's not everybody's cup of tea, but then maybe Sohi, his former assistant and herself an icon in the industry, maybe Sohi's messaging or Spencer's messaging is, is the kind of right thing for you and you will self-select to that. So I think a lot of fitness professionals just need to get a whole lot better at embracing this. And what comes with it is the potential for scale, livelihood, developing career vehicles, breaking outside of that box of rigid thinking to say we have to trade the the hour for the session, create resources that simply help more people and everybody wins or else we can just grumble and leave people to, you know, be led around by the liver king. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And one of the things that I don't think people always realize is like, as a professional, your goal should always be to kind of be a leader in your industry, right? And that doesn't always mean you're the head honcho. Leadership also means like you're a leader for your clients, right? They're looking to you for leadership. And leadership is basically just influence, right? So when you build your branding, you're building influence. So you're kind of building leadership with your clients, with your community. So I think people need to start taking the perspective of like, hey, here's how I'm thinking about why I'm building a personal brand, right? It's how do I develop trust and influence over my community? Um, and so that kind of brings me to, you know, the next question is, as professionals, how do you think we can better reach our clients, right? I think you just kind of gave a great example of, you know, one, learning to communicate like interpersonally, right? If your goal as a professional is not to create conflict and like make sure that they know that you're right and they're stupid, but like, one, how do you, de- how do we better reach our clients from like a a high level, like a marketing, getting my message out there in a pretty kind of crowded space? And then two, how do we better reach our clients at like a personal level? Once the second one first. Uh, second one first, it is asking better questions. It is speaking their language and it's asking better questions. I like just to point people if you're, you know, and I don't know if your audience is more of, I don't, I'm sure the, the macros Inc. coaches are listening. Hi guys, you guys are awesome. Um, but also there's probably your, uh, your community of of people who are being coached or looking for help. I love the book, The Coaching Habit by Michael Bundy Stainer. I think it will help anybody in any walk of life, probably just in your interpersonal relationships. And it just goes over some basic questions, but it retrains you to think 
to not immediately go into advice mode and expert mode. And, you know, when someone's telling you something, you don't quickly kind of try to interrupt with here, go do this. It's actually to ask a question so that way they arrive at the solution. Because if you've ever coached anybody or you've had a conversation with a spouse or someone else, we know that when we tell people to do things, it doesn't work very well. But if we facilitate a discussion that gets that person to choose the best action, course of action for themselves, they tend to be more bought in. They're more effective at it. So you can get people to make changes simply by being really great at asking good questions and resetting your default to asking questions first versus giving advice first. And on a bigger picture, I do think it's overcoming this discomfort with the idea of branding or that we think it's 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 about vanity or ego. I mean, sure, you know, there are people who treat it that way. Um, one of my favorite concepts is to realize that most humans think in terms of status. However, if we can ourselves get away from status-based thinking and think in terms of simply being of service all the time, a lot of the people who have scaled their ability to help more people are rooted in a, in a service mindset. And it's not about, well, what's in this for me? You know, it's getting away from transactional behavior. I, I see a lot of transactional stuff in the industry. You know, people I have no relationship with or have never demonstrated any consistent behavior of sharing and supporting other people, you know, will shoot me messages and ask me for stuff, which to me is kind of off-putting. I mean, if it's an earned ask and it's a good friend and there's a long-standing if it's something like, for example, I have a fitness conference and I'm rebooting for this year coming in October and we're prioritizing Canadian speakers and I'm trying to have speakers of, who come from different backgrounds. I don't want it to be 14 dudes. OK, right. Like and, and again, I don't like performative diversity. I like let's actually like create opportunity from people from different perspectives. So the people in the audience look at look at this and go, yeah, there's there's someone in here who you know resonates with me more complicated topic that isn't not where I want to go with this but so and I'm obviously I'm bringing in people who have that big personal brand who are going to put butts in seats because I've got to fly people in I've got a limited number of spots and my dms have been full with well-intentioned people but self-interested people who are like hey can I come speak and in various different iterations of that and they're people who they're not yet aware of the fact that, well, yes, that benefits you, but it actually doesn't benefit my events or put butts in seats. So that's not the best avenue for you. So I, I to me, it's sort of an inappropriate ask. There are the people out there, well, you can't, it doesn't hurt to ask. You can't get opportunities if you don't ask. I'm more of the mindset, just put your head down, put in the work, serve people, be great about showcasing your wins and the things you're doing. And then people start knocking on your door and saying, listen, I need you to be part of this. This is kind of what happened with me with, with Tim's event. You know, I know that when he first started it, you know, you're probably the first person he thought of. He's like, hey, man, I've got this idea. You got to come be a part of this, right? Because of your relationship. That's a that's a slightly different thing. But I think a lot of people are just too wired to think in terms of what they're going to get out of anything. And, and that fundamentally is not the attitude of someone who is able to reach and help more people. You have to play the long game. You have to be really patient with it. You have to keep developing the skills and and maybe that's writing skills, maybe that's video skills or whatever media skills and whatever social media platform that you choose and learning how to shift with the platform as the platform changes the way it delivers things. Because you have to, you have to play a long game, an infinite game 
with wanting to help people. And that's that's a mindset. That's not a tactical everyday thing. That's a mindset. And so you have to approach it that way without a specific expectation of return. I need to be famous in three months. Not going to happen, right? Or if you're really good at reels and maybe you figure out how to go crazy on the algorithm, you build a big following. Well, great, but where's the substance of the systems and the information, the resources that you can then turn around and A, leverage the attention you've gotten and and do things that actually help people. I think social media is great. We, you know, it gets a bad rap. Certainly a lot of people misuse it, but it can do a wonderful job of being that surface level touch point to then bring people to your greater resources. Like in your guy's case, you know, a, a company that has a great team of coaches, great educational resources, a great community. And, you know, you, I, I know you for a very long time. You're, you're of a service mindset. There's no ego. There's no desire for status. And you're in a very enviable position in the industry of what you get to do. You're also comfortable letting Macros Inc. and the coaches, the team, be the, you know, the, the face and the brand. Uh, meanwhile, just everybody that knows you knows that you're a, a quality human being. I look forward to seeing you every time we get to do the Inland Fire Fitness Conference. So you're sort of the poster child for doing this, Ed, but not, you know, some people will crave a bit more of a bigger personal brand. You know, you're, there are people in our industry who are very well respected and they do really well, but they haven't necessarily launched into a big social media brand. Melody Schoenfeld is a very close friend who I think is an excellent example of this. Chad Landers, Robert Lincoln. There are lots of people. I would even argue James Krieger to a point, although I think James is, you know, as a slightly bigger facing brand, he's got a larger social media following. But James has always been about creating resources and things that help people. And he's been more passionate about helping, filling a void now uh, to help people with the kind of the financial side of stuff versus just the the evidence-based uh, training stuff. Yeah. And it's been really interesting to watch just how many different roads and paths to career success there are. Right. Um, I mean, there's people who have 10 followers who've built million plus dollar companies. There's people who have million plus followings who probably can barely pay rent. And it's like, there's so many ways to kind of slice the apple to, to get to where you want to go and just trying to figure out what resonates with you as kind of a human being and what you want to do with your career. Um, you know, one of the questions that I'd I'd love to kind of as we're kind of transitioning from career and kind of how do we reach clients, you know, you've worked in person with clients for a decade plus. You've probably seen the full spectrum of, you know, people, you've probably seen the full spectrum of results. From your experience, what would you say sets successful clients apart from not successful clients? There's one big one. I mean, there's a lot of elements, this, but one big one I've noticed, and it's rooted in identity. The example that I've been using for this is I have coached police applicants for a long time. I don't brand around it. It's still a small piece of a big puzzle. I'm primarily gen pop. I've done a few contest preps for stage. I don't like it, so I don't do it anymore. I've helped clients who I had for a long time. And then once I did one show, I transitioned to a coach who specializes uh, I don't have any skill in Olympic lifting, and I'm not a competitive powerlifter. So once I get to the point where they want to do meets, again, we arrange for a coach who specializes in 
peaking and tapering and all the sort of technical nuances there. But I do work with police, fire applicants, military applicants. And I've noticed two different kinds of people that come through the police applicant and the fire ones. There are people who have a very strong identity of being the fit, active person who sees himself as that already in the lifestyle of the police officer, the firefighter. And they tend to come in already in better shape. They're pretty close to being able to pass a physical. If they're, if they're sent to me, they need to push over the edge to get in shape for a physical. The second group are usually, on average, quote, less in shape. They usually carry more body fat. And then there's not necessarily that's anything wrong with that. It's just they're further away from where they need to be to pass these physicals. But I get this mindset more of, well, once I get in and pass this physical, then I will, you know, have the identity of the, the police officer, the firefighter. The first group almost invariably pass the physical, whether or not they get through the other aspects of the system is, you know, is different. The second group, almost never pass the physical or go on to that career. And it's identity is important. And I like to get people to think either in terms of getting in touch with, you know, maybe an older identity that was, quote, more fit, more active, more healthy, you know, the way that they ate. Or think about an aspirational identity and really root your thoughts in identifying with these changes in this lifestyle. Because... We know we talk a lot about willpower when it comes to habits, and you are far more likely to make choices, make decisions in line with your sense of self, who you are, what your identity is. And those decisions rely less upon willpower. So for people like us, anybody who's listening who is, you know, a coach is, is a really, really enthusiastic about fitness for a really long time, it's it's your default setting. It's your second nature to cook. To, to prepare healthy meals at home, to consistently go to the gym or engage in like your, your favorite, you know, cardiovascular activities, whether you're a runner or, you know, whatever sports you play. It almost takes more energy, mental energy to decide not to do these things than it does to do them. But we have to have empathy for people on the other side of that, where they have to rely very heavily upon willpower. And the wrong kind of messaging from some coaches is, hey, you know, you just have to, you know, you need more willpower. You know, you're there's something wrong with you. I also don't believe in policing the people who have that tougher message because I think there's a small chunk of the population that will self-select and respond a bit better to the tougher love. I don't like shaming based language. I do not. But you know what? If if people self-select to that sort of thing, cool. I think it's also something that fitness professionals get trapped in and they start policing this stuff and they get off mission. But as a whole, we know that shame-based stuff doesn't really help people. So what do we do? We talk to them about the things that emotionally resonate with them and get them open to a shifting of a sense of identity of what their identity could become. And then maybe the decisions become just a little bit easier because they're less dependent upon willpower, which means they're less likely by the end of the day to metaphorically you know, crash on the couch with the bag of chips and the next, you know, three days have gone by and I'll reset on Monday. So I, I think when we start thinking about things in terms of identity, if we have, if we forge that identity, we can effectively bypass willpower. 
what this kind of brings to mind to me when you talk about identity is I think at this point in my career, how many like client intake forms I've looked over and, you know, kind of client trajectories I've watched. How many of your clients do you feel self-select into being able to reach their goals or not from day one? Like, I think if I were to like read a client intake form, I could basically tell they identify as somebody who can't lose weight no matter what they do. Or they identify as somebody who is aware that they just need to change a few things and they'll get to where they want to go. And it's pretty, it's pretty easy to kind of differentiate those people based on what you read on an intake form or the consult you have. And it's very rare that they kind of jump that gap. Mm. Would you say and that's accurate in your experience? It is. And you hit on something that you know, it's almost like you read my mind because it sort of dances around some stuff we talked about this ask this idea of self-selection the deeper you get into your career and the more branded you become and the more word of mouth reputation gets around and it, it 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 matters for companies just as much as it does individuals people more for lack of a better way of saying it, more serious people people who are already wired for that kind of identity generally speaking self-select to you because they're the type of people who are more likely to do research ask for a referral so there's people who are on impulse driving past the commercial gym and then pop in buy a membership and sign up for a trainer again uh, they're less likely to do the due diligence to come and find you they're less likely to find macros inc or stronger you or pn or renaissance periodization as they are to go for something like Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers. Now, quite frankly, I think there's some some fundamentally good stuff within Weight Watchers. I actually have a number of clients who currently or used to use Weight Watchers point system, which out of all the stuff that's out there, you know, I actually think it's one of the fundamentally better ones. But again, just just as a side point, we also know there's a lot of stuff out there. What is it? Dr. Bernstein's, uh, you know, like that, that one I'm not a big fan of. And so the people who are going to self-select to that stuff are invariably the people that will end up on our doorstep very often. So it may be that, well, as you mature in your career and you're around longer, it seems like it gets easier. I think we all get more skilled, but I think there's an aspect of, you know, the type of people who are better fits actually end up working with us. And that's okay because we can't help everyone. We can't save everyone. Uh, Macros Inc. is going to have the kind of people who are a really great fit for it self-select and then unfortunately the ones who really aren't are either not going to make it through the intake process in the first place or they'll just wash out and it's important that coaches i I like taking ownership of everything so that way you know we do everything we can to help the person but we can't take so much ownership that we completely rob the person of their own ownership of of the decisions and sometimes coaches do this shit which doesn't help at, at all but we also have to understand that sometimes someone just, they're not in the right place to actually be a good fit to work with you. And you're better off working with people who actually you can help and who are going to be a better fit. Because we also have to look at your longevity in the industry. I am pickier than ever about the people I work with. And I'm very comfortable politely and professionally letting a client go. I, I don't like it when coaches brag about firing clients. I think that's trash messaging too. I don't think that helps. But I'm comfortable professionally finding, you know, 
another coach for a client who I do not feel is a good fit for me because that person is stressing me out or robbing me of my emotional well-being or unreliable in a way that's, you know, just basically pushing my buttons, then I realize that's actually negatively impacting my ability to sustain all the other things I want to do and to have a really good attitude and energy for all my other clients. If you're interested in this concept, the book, Book Yourself Solid by Michael Port does a wonderful job. Every coach would benefit from reading this, especially if you're struggling with being as busy as you want to be. Okay. So anyway, I think this is really important. When you've worked with clients who kind of, you know, they start from kind of the, maybe the identity of nothing's going to work for me, or I'm not a fit person. I'm just doing this to, you know, achieve a short-term goal, right? One of the ways that I've found to get people to kind of change their position is a, a lot of it comes down to things that they've told themselves that aren't true. Right. And so how do we, and I found the most effective way to try to get people across that kind of gap is slowly systematically peeling away their negative self-beliefs, right. Of like, they're like, Hey, I can't lose weight because I have PCOS or I'm menopausal or I have a thyroid condition. And then you like, you kind of have these conversations over time of like, Hey, I hear you. And it's probably more difficult and it is frustrating. Let me show you some things about like why we can remove that as a barrier and how we can remove that as a barrier. And you kind of have to just slowly peel the layers back. And you do it by building trust. Yeah. So for the people who maybe don't have that identity, the first thing I do with any client like that or any client is I make sure that they enjoy the experience of coming to work with me and they enjoy the environment that we're working in. So if I'm at the gym, then I want to make sure that they feel comfortable, not intimidated, welcome in that gym space. And if you create an environment and a relationship that people want to return to, it might be enough that it kind of embeds the habit and then some things change anyway. Usually trust comes with that. And with trust, then you can, I've got a client that I have a great relationship with who is prone to negative self-talk. And so she made a comment that was particularly disparaging of herself, something about her body. And I just brought it to her attention and just, hey, you know, in, in a very empathetic and careful way, I didn't criticize her. And it at least opens up the discussion. You're not going to change someone who's wired for negative self-talk, but if you train people to be alert to it, because also it's okay for us to very politely not tolerate negative self-talk, you know, in, in, in relationships that we have. So we can bring it to the forefront. And if we can make them more alert to it, it can start the process of getting them to do it less because it's a particularly nasty, insidious behavior. We we do this thing where we, we tear ourselves down because we think it's armor that protects us against the criticisms that other people will level toward us. When our body, our nervous system, our psyche can't differentiate between where the message is coming from. So it's it's very nasty when we do it. And when you really think about it, there's very few instances out in the world where someone is that nasty or vicious. I would say over 95% of that nasty messaging, if not more, will come from within. So if we can start to recognize it and then just 
hopefully train ourselves, wean ourselves off of this. That in of itself can be really good. And there's one other thing that I really try to do. Again, with the trust and the relationship, if they get to the gym enough, you know, the nutrition changes, it's getting them to realize that it feels better, that they feel better, their energy is better, they're stronger. I love focusing on strength versus weight loss. I don't have any messaging around weight loss for my clientele. And honestly, I'm very careful about not taking on too many clients all at the same time who I would consider to be very, very significant weight loss clients because it's a challenge. So I want to be able to serve those people really well. And But if they get, they follow them up with strength training, usually that's the thing that keeps them coming back, not the desire for losing more weight. And then the weight tends to just come off. And if you can get people to realize, wait a second, like I feel way better, I wouldn't want to go back to the couch and the chips as the metaphor. Then that's how the, the identity shifts. So it's it's that. It's it's the relationship, making sure they really enjoy it and that they really understand how it feels so much better. And that's the pathway from to shifting the identity and the laying the foundations, I think, for, for really successful, sustainable lifestyle change. I kind of want to circle back to kind of very early in our conversation. Um, and I kind of want to bring a quote from the last time we were together in IE at the Inland Empire Conference. Um, and Charlie gave his his presentation. And I think he started it with, hey, we need to stop calling ourselves an industry and start calling ourselves professionals. I think was his like exact quote. Um, and it kind of like got me thinking... You know, I think you're a great example of this, and I mentioned this at kind of the the top of the show. Is when did you decide that this was a career versus a job, and what have you done to treat it such that it's a career, not a job? Because I think that they're very different mindsets, right? And it's very different approaches: the way you treat your clients, the way you interact with your colleagues, the self development you do. Kind of just talk me through how you made that decision and what you've kind of done to put yourself on that path? I don't know if there's an inflection point. I didn't come into the industry passionate about helping people. I fell into the job because I was leaving another industry, the casino industry of all things, that I was not, I did not see, wasn't positive, I didn't see a lot of future in it. And I kept getting asked to come work as a trainer at the gym that I worked out at. And I kept saying no, just to give you an idea. So I started it feeling overwhelmed and not knowing what I was doing. But it took hold. And it's it's sort of the debunking of the passion hypothesis that the book, So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport, does a really good job with. I recommend reading it. And it's more about just continuously showing up and doing the work and finding the passion within it. And that's kind of what happened as I started discovering, well, A, my clients were getting results. I was enjoying the environment. It was a, you know, it was something that made me feel good. Uh, I was good at it, which is validated. And then I started diving into educational resources that helped me you know, get better. And then I think that became a big part of my identity was the continuing education part. And I don't know if I've ever necessarily like thought about it in terms of, quote, being a professional. I think it's just I'm wired with a very high standard. I also didn't know any better that the standard that I brought to the table about how, how many clients I was training and what I was doing was not the norm. I, I had this, something that my first fitness manager said to me about, you know, the numbers, the number of sessions and sales or what ha- have you. Um, 
that I got in my head was these, these numbers of sessions you train per month was kind of like the average trainer. Um, but actually, that was sort of a, a miscommunication or, or misleading to where what I thought was the standard was actually me being the top producing session trainer in the company. And so year over year over year, as long as I was there, I was doing the most sessions in the entire company. Sales, because the dollar value of my sales were a little lower, uh, there's a couple of guys who were higher than me. Dean Somerset, a very, very notable fitness professional friend. Um, you know, he's one of the top guys in the industry for a really long time. And of course, he was in the same company here in Edmonton. But it was good to me. And so it just became my normal. And then as I got out into the industry more and more, I'm just wired this way. I expect professionalism around me. I've had conflict with, with trainers and staff in the industry who've been involved in sexual harassment and predatory multi-level marketing stuff on a, on a local level or malicious behavior in the industry. I have been the target of some really malicious stuff by bullies in our world because I have no tolerance for their behavior. Not interested in naming names, but there's at least a couple of them. And they're fairly notorious in our space, so it doesn't stress me out because I would rather you know set the standard that I set and try to focus on people than necessarily to fight these battles. And if anything, I've been told that having these people going after me means I've made it. So then you smile and laugh. Um, so no, there, there wasn't a decision point. It's just something that worked and worked and worked. And I just kept seeing new opportunities. And I kept saying yes to opportunities before I was ready. My friend Dean Guido said, hey, let's start a podcast. Okay, cool. Didn't know what I was getting into. That worked out okay. Um, you know, connected with one of the editors of Teen Nation, Danny Sugart. I'd already started writing for my website because I knew I wanted to do that. And then I met our friend Mike Howard at the 2018 Inland Empire Fitness Conference. And I didn't know at the time, but Mike picked articles for the weekly best of the Personal Trainer Development Center. And I was on his radar. And also met Lou Schuler uh, in the previous year, who's wired in with that stuff. And next, you know, my articles are getting shared on this larger platform. And then I get on with Teen Nation which has led to other things. And I just kept saying yes before I thought I was ready. And the same thing happened when Tim asked me to speak and then that blew up. And I just kept, I, I like the people who do good stuff. So I keep sharing them and supporting them long before I met a lot of these people that a lot of these people suddenly become my friends, but people see the way that you act consistently and they see this and then they want to, they want to work with you. They want to get to know you. They want to be in, involved. They want you on their podcast. They want you at their events and you just keep showing up to support those people. And the universe just seems to give back to you tenfold if you have this really cool abundance mindset. So on the career side, I honestly think if you're really patient, if you're not transactional, if you're not always thinking about what's in this for me, if it's not always tactical, it feels good to just do cool things for other people. It feels good to see other people succeed. It doesn't take any food off my plate to introduce a friend of mine who I think has earned it, uh, to introduce them to an at one of my editors at one of the publications. I was at the Olympia and I was with the Muscle Fitness crew. My editor, Jeff Tomko, was there and my pal Melody Schoenfeld was there. She was there competing in one of the strongman things. I introduced them and I was very insistent that, hey, you know, Melody would be a great fit. Melody's written for a whole bunch of other stuff. So sure enough, you know, Melody's going to do some stuff for Muscle Fitness, which is not an opportunity she needs, but hey, it's, it's kind of cool. That makes me feel good. I'm already in with them. They treat me great. If I bring them more writers, cool. I'm too busy to give them as much as they want, right? Same when it comes to T-Nation. So therefore, if I give it to other people, well, anytime I want to give them, you know, write something for them, the door is always open.
Yeah. Um, so we've got a few more minutes uh, before we close out and wanted to ask you a little bit, you know, where do you see our profession going over the next couple of years? I'll give you a quick answer. Uh, Cause yeah, we are really low on time. So I don't think much fundamentally changes. Don't worry. It's okay. My guys early. I'm, I'll ignore them. Um, I think that if you're of service mindset and you take good care of the people right in front of you, then you will be successful. There's all this buzz about uh, chat GPT and AI. Sure. This will change things, but it's going to be a very efficient tool to help you do a lot of the resource building at scale that will free you up to continue to be of service. And other than that, these algorithms are not going to replace the experience of the coach for most people. Sure, you get, you know, Renaissance Periodization's app under templates. You know, the type of people that benefit from that will self-select to go to those things. But that just brings more people to our industry's door as a whole. It doesn't take away from, you know, the one-on-one service that we will have for the clients who self-select to it. So I, I really don't think anything changes, nor do I think we need to freak out about it. I think if we're always of an abundant mindset, if we're always focused on continually learning and being better and just serving the per- people in front of us, I don't think that ever changes and nor is that going to change anytime soon. I a hundred percent agree with you. So, uh, all right. Well, with that, we'll wrap up, uh, anything you would like to plug besides your website, andrewcoatsfitness.com. Um, any, I know you're hosting a conference, anything else you want to maybe steer people towards before we jump off here? Everything goes through my Instagram. I would love to have you guys on at Andrew Coates Fitness on Instagram. You can shoot me a message anytime about questions. I respond to all messages. Um, yeah, I will talk more about my conference. I will officially announce the roster. Its dates are set October 13th and 14th, and I promise you it's going to have a powerhouse lineup, right? primarily Canadian speakers, but I'm bringing up some big-name Americans in our industry. And... Other than that, yeah, I'll just share things as irrelevant. Uh, I'm not sure when this is released. Probably I'll already have finished my talk at Raise the Bar in Dallas. Uh, March 6th and 7th, I'm speaking at the Real Coaches Summit in Vegas for a friend of mine, Aram's event. And then I'll be just hanging out with Luca Hosovar, Don Saladino, and uh, Dennis and Kelsey Heenan for their event, the March 11th in Seattle. And I got some other stuff coming up. There'll be a bunch of events over the year. So I will, uh, I'll share it up on my media. Brad, thank you for having me on, uh, macros Inc community. Uh, love you guys. You guys are always great. I'll, uh, I'll see you as soon at an event. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate the gift of your time. Uh, enjoy your day and, uh, I'm sure I'll see you soon. You will right. take care, buddy. Take care. Thanks. Bye.